0: So there was a, an area that had become uh, overrun with wolves. There were just too many wolves in the area. And so the government decided to put a bounty of $5,000 for every wolf that was killed. So a hunter named Bob um, basically goes to his friend John and says, John, uh, we could go make a lot of money if we go and uh, hunt these wolves. Like $5,000 ahead, even if we split that, that could still be a lot of money and so he says do you want to go do some hunting and make some money and so the friend John says yeah sure absolutely Bob I'll go do that uh, they sort of get their equipment together and they they're gonna go out and hunt uh, in the forest and so they get like a tent and they're gonna go like camp out and sort of get ready in, in their location that they think is a good spot and get ready so in the middle of the night though they're sleeping and all of a sudden um, Bob is awoken because there's this loud noise outside of his tent This this gnarling of teeth and this this um, just uh, growling from from these wolves and so he opens up uh, the tent door a little bit he turns on the lantern up a little bit and he looks out and he just sees this these wolves are just all surrounding his tent and so quickly he he tries to wake up his friend John and said John wake up up. you got to see this you got to see this and so the you know the friend sort of wakes up and says "Uh, okay what's going on like what's going on and and Bob looks at him and says we're gonna be rich today. (laughs) And he's sort of saying that there's all these wolves around him that we're gonna be able to kill them and make a lot of money off of them But I don't know about you when I first was sort of hearing this story that uh, my first thought was not about making a lot of money My first thought is oh, no, you're in danger, right? And the key distinction is perspective, right? The perspective of how you're looking at a situation how you're looking at any situation is very important to the conclusions that you draw about the situation And so, um, you know, in that story, it's sort of an example, the perspective is very different. You know, Bob had one perspective of saying we're gonna make a lot of money, but maybe John woke up and was like, no, (laughs) I'm I'm worried about my life, I'm scared, you know, all those different things that would have been logical. And many times life is really all about perspective, right? It's all about how we look at things and how we see things. Um, Sometimes we can be surrounded by circumstances that can appear to be not good. Um, The timing of those can be not good and we can say, well, that's just sort of bad luck or that's something bad's gonna happen. And we can't see the whole picture, we can't see what's in front of us, but it really does, again, depend on our perspective, and our perspective includes a lot of different things, right? It includes the angle from which we see things, Now, it's very important to note at this point that we all have a little bit of a different angle at the same thing at times, right? And sometimes you can be blocked from seeing something behind something. You can see something that somebody else can't see. You know, there's a lot of different points about that, but we all have an angle through which we see things. We also have an interpretation of the circumstances, right? And part of that is from our own past experience. Part of that's from just sort of the knowledge and the the wisdom that we've accumulated, the education that we have, the the opportunities that we've been given already. Um, Some of that is, again, just based on the similar experiences to what we're going through in that moment, to how we look at a situation. Maybe we've had something similar happen, and so we sort of, again, draw some conclusions, and our perspective is sort of based on those similar experiences that we have. But those are the things our perspective includes. On the flip side... Our perspective doesn't include a lot of things. Our perspective doesn't include many things. Namely, it doesn't include anyone else's perspective, right? We can only see things from our perspective for the most part. Now, hopefully, we try to understand other people's perspectives, but we still don't have their perspective. We really only have our own perspective. We don't have all the angles either, right? We don't have an a, a omnipresent view of the situation. Uh, we don't have a complete uh, understanding of the circumstances so that we can come to a better, complete interpretation of the circumstances. And then you sort of add in, again, that sort of that God omnipotent, om, omniscient, om, you know, omnipresent factor that God is sort of able to see all the perspectives. He's able to see from our perspective, but he's able to see from every other Perspective beyond us. And particularly that's important because Jesus. Jesus came to be one of us, and so God has that perspective from Jesus as well. And so even though we might not be surrounded by circumstances, or we might be surrounded by circumstances that seem negative from our perspective that's not necessarily the whole picture, right? We have to understand that. we can look back at any sort of example in our, our life as a kid, or maybe as a teenager, as a student, we sort of see that, yeah, our perspective was not the whole thing. And I thought, we thought that was really negative, but it turned out to be something that at least wasn't bad, it was maybe neutral, or maybe even it became good. And so I want to invite everybody, including those of you online today, to sort of test a statement that I think, um, I think it's, a, it's a powerful enough statement that I would like us to test it and sort of to, to see if it actually holds up to, to the weight that I think this story that we're going to look at today will, will give credit to. The statement is that our God can reverse circumstances that seem irreversible and make sense out of confusing events. That our God can reverse circumstances, circumstances that may be going in a bad direction, but somehow he can sort of change them to making it a good direction or a better direction or a redeeming direction that that maybe we make a bad decision and somehow God can still turn that for good. And also he can make sense out of confusing events in life. And I think that again, sometimes just comes with time. It comes with experience, but I think that this is a statement that we can test. And hopefully as we read the story of, continue reading the story of Esther, you'll see that that is true. As well. So as I said, we're wrapping up this series called Divine Coincidence. And we've been using sort of the definition of coincidence to sort of guide a little bit of our thinking. That the coincidence is basically a remarkable set of events or circumstances happening or existing at the same time. And the last part is sort of the key part, without apparent orchestration. Now that last part again is sort of where you would say, but that's how does that sort of fit in with the view of God, or how does that fit in with the story of Esther? Well, the important point is that we sort of believe that without apparent orchestration, in the moment, we might not see that God is working. We might not think that God is working. But then later, or with some more knowledge, or with some more experience, or, or with just seeing things differently, we see that maybe there was some sort of orchestration behind events, that it wasn't just completely random, without any purpose or intention, behind it. Uh, And the the thing about this book of Esther we said is that it doesn't mention the name of God. God's not mentioned throughout the book, and so it leads us to some questions like, why is God not mentioned? Where is God at? And that sort of, again, leads to this idea that maybe there's somebody behind the scenes narrating and sort of orchestrating and and making things happen. And we said that one of the reasons that the author doesn't mention God by name, and and there's another one that we're going to get to a little bit later, but one of the reasons might be that God, that, that the author wants us to remember that God is at work even when we don't see him, that we're not always going to see God. And, and part of the reason that we don't see God is because God is so much bigger than us. We can't even really imagine or, or think about or even uh, comprehend the ways that God could be working beyond our Uh, Our perspective, and um, again, because God's not mentioned by name, it sort of seems like some of these events might be just coincidence or happenstance or luck. That's a big thing that's sort of integrated our culture lately. But that's not the case. As we see that God is actually working in ways in every chapter, in every little detail. There's so many ways that God is working. Hopefully, we'll kind of tie some of those things together to help see that they're not just happenstance or coincidence. Um, So, if you don't know the book of, uh, we're going to quickly recap. But the book of Esther takes place in the Persian Empire and in Susa, the capital. Um, The empire is really big. It's vast. It stretches from India through Asia Minor all the way to Egypt. Uh, Sorry, rather... Uh, Ethiopia is what I meant to say, sorry, (laughs) Ethiopia, another E word, Um, and so God basically is going to use two different people, Mordecai and Esther, who are are family with each other, he's going to use them to rescue his people from annihilation, and the story starts with Esther sort of winning this beauty contest, which again sort of seems random and strange a little bit, but she becomes the queen because of that beauty contest win, And, and Mordecai also, he saves the life, Of the king. And through these sort of strange and also sometimes painful events, God is again sort of working behind the scenes to sort of set up some things that might seem like they're just coincidence without orchestration. And yet we see that when God seems absent, his invisible hand is still at work. And then last week, or a couple of weeks ago, we met the villain, Haman, who, who gets the king to sort of agree to this edict to basically annihilate all the Jews. That's where we see this, this idea to save the Jews from. Uh, Haman gets this edict to, to annihilate all the Jews, and the king goes along with it. And then we see that Mordecai uh, tells Esther about this opportunity, that this is an opportunity. Even though you're about ready to be killed, potentially, this is the opportunity of why you may have become queen in the first place. He says, who knows if perhaps you were made for such a time as this? And so we ask the question, we ask ourselves, well, what if God made us for just this time? And you guys might be going through things that you say, well, I don't even understand that. And, and maybe you won't understand that right now. But what if God made me for just such a time as this? We'll get to a little bit of how we do that in, in a little bit later today. Um, and so we said the point is that when such a time comes... God wants to use us for a bigger purpose. And we said the bigger purpose is way more than us usually. Usually it's not just us. Usually it's other people. It's also something that's bigger than we can even imagine or comprehend on our own. And it's also usually bigger than just sort of avoiding discomfort or suffering, which, if we're honest, that's another sort of underlying foundational principle that sort of seeps into our culture. We're just trying to avoid risk. We're trying to avoid anything that might be discomforting or might lead to suffering. And then last week we sort of piggybacked on that with um, the idea of luck. That basically opportunities and timing just sort meeting up randomly. That's what luck is. And it can be good luck or bad luck, depending on if the opportunities or the timing are good or bad. And sometimes there's a good opportunity that just sort of meets up randomly or seems randomly. And that's what we sort of say is luck. But we said that when opportunities and timing collide, as a Jesus follower, as somebody who looks to God, we should follow the one who can orchestrate both of those things. And we should follow him, even if it seems like luck initially, we should follow God through that situation and through that opportunity. Um, and so last week, we sort of wrapped up the story with Haman um, getting, all of a sudden, he's, he's thrown in front of the king, uh, being accused of, again, trying to kill all the Jews. And, and Esther brings that accusation before him. Uh, Haman eventually gets killed, as we see. And, and ironically, as we're going to see a lot of I- irony in the rest of this message today, there's sort of a reversal. Haman had built this huge, giant, sharpened stake, a 75-foot stake in the ground. I don't know how you do that, but he did. And, and he was going to have uh, Mordecai impaled on it he had a big deal with Mordecai, but it turns out, the ironic reversal turns out that the king has Haman impaled on the 75-foot pole, the large stake, and we see this in Esther chapter 7, verse 10. We'll pick up there. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. Now, that obviously eliminated part of the problem for the Jews, the leader of the problem, the the leader who started out this edict and this, this, this decree to kill all the Jews, um, and so that eliminates Haman as the leader, but it doesn't eliminate the edict that was already in place. It doesn't solve that problem of wanting to kill all the Jews, and that sort of being the rule of the law that was coming up. And so the focus turns to Esther and Mordecai as they try to find a solution, as they try to plan for a way to get around this. And again, as we're going to see, God is a God of reversal. So we're going to start in Esther chapter 8, if you want to follow along in the Bible app. Um, we should have the notes there as well, but we'll also have them on the screen as well, too. Um, Esther chapter 8, beginning verse 1. It says this On that same day that, that uh, Haman was killed on the pole, on that same day, King Xerxes gave the property of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. And then Mordecai was brought before the king, for Esther had told the king how. They were related. And basically throughout the remainder of this book, um, there's going to be some reversals, some some good things for some people and some bad things for others. This instance is going to be one of the bad things for Haman and also one of the good things for Mordecai. And these bad reversals for Haman, interestingly, even though he's dead, these bad things keep happening to him and to his family and to his property, in fact. And this is sort of the first one that's an economic reversal that God reverses the economy of what's going on in this situation, that Haman has sort of profited from being so close to the king, from being second in command, and from preparing this plan and all these things along with it. And so not only is Haman's life taken in this, in this story, but now all of Haman's property is going to be taken from him and from his estate and from his family. And we read this in Proverbs 13 that, that God, is, God is about sort of doing this in, in, in various different ways and, and sometimes it's more immediate, sometimes it's over time, but Proverbs chapter 13 verse 22 it says, good people leave an inheritance to their grandchildren, but the sinner's wealth passes to the godly. That God has this way of sort of reversing what, what a sinner used to, to accumulate wealth and to hoard wealth and to, to be just sort of focused on themselves with their wealth and to be f- consumed with greed. And somehow God is able to then pass it on to the godly and move it on to them. That God can do this economic reversal thing in ways that, you know, economists and strategists and all these different people could could never necessarily implement on their own. But but there's this way that God can sort of move things um, that way. Uh, Continuing on verse 2. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken back from Haman. So Haman originally had the signet ring, but the king takes it back before he kills him. And he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai to be in charge of Haman's Property. So again, these bad reversals for Haman keep coming. Not only is his property taken away, but his position and his status, which obviously he's dead, so he sort of lost that, but significant in this symbolic act of this signet ring being taken away as well. That this signet ring was sort of a way to sort of transfer power from the king, from the emperor Xerxes. To anybody who had the ring, it was sort of his stamp of approval. And so this this is a symbolic gesture, but in many ways it's a a real-life political reversal that's happening. That Haman once had this political uh, power and opportunity and influence, and he's lost all that to his enemy, to the person that he was trying to kill and trying to get rid of. And now Mordecai has this influence and this power. And not only did Mordecai get Xerxes' uh, signet ring, but he was also, again, appointed over the estate of Haman. So not only if you think back, actually, to the the original edict that Haman helped institute saying, let's kill the Jews, we're also going to take their property. They were also going to accumulate all kinds of property and wealth, and they were going to take it from the Jews. And now, and again, in that reversal thing, God takes away the property from Haman and gives it to a Jew, Mordecai. Now, Mordecai's overseeing it, and he owns it. Again, overseeing it as Esther owns it. Verse 3, Then Esther went again before the king, falling down at his feet, and begging him with tears to stop the evil plot devised by Haman, the Agite, against The Jews. Now this starts the legal reversal. So we've had a few different reversals already. We've had the economic reversal, we've had the the political reversal. Now we're having the legal reversal. Because again, Haman's execution didn't stop the law from continuing to go forward that they were gonna kill the Jews on this designated date, March seventh, which we'll see in just a second. And they're gonna kill the Jews on this date. That date's still coming, whether or not Haman's alive. And so they have to have this sort of legal change to happen. And Esther says, King, would you please change this so that my people won't die? Would you stop this from happening? But, as we're going to see, the king sort of reminds, um, well, we're not going to read it specifically, but the king reminds Esther that in, in the Persian Empire, you couldn't just reverse a law. You couldn't just repeal a law that had been made. Once it's made, it's it's sort of made, you got to stick to it. And so um, you have to sort of come up with another law that can sort of maybe counteract it, but both laws are going to be basically in place at the same time. And so the king gives Esther and Mordecai his authority to go and write a new law that would then sort of, you know, balance out the other law that he already agreed to. And this is how it seems that, again, God steps into the equation. God steps into the story. And when God steps in, interestingly, a lot of times God doesn't necessarily change evil from being evil. It it still many times is evil, right? But God still can somehow work behind the scenes, and he can use that evil. He can then make it for good, because again, our God is a God of reversals. Jumping down to verse 9, it says this, so on June 25th, remember the date coming ahead is March 7th, so they got about like nine months before this date's going to come where the Jews are going to be killed. So on June 25th, the king's secretaries were summoned, and a decree was written exactly as Mordecai dictated. It was sent to the Jews and to the highest officers, the governors and the nobles of all 127 provinces. That's a lot of provinces, 127 provinces, stretching again from India to Ethiopia. The decree was written in the scripts and languages of all the peoples of the empire, including that of the Jews. The decree was written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring. Mordecai sent the dispatches by swift messengers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king's service. Verse 11. The king's decree gave the Jews in every city authority to unite, to defend their lives. That that's sort of how this all came about, this reversal of this legal thing now becoming something that is going to be able to, the Jews are going to be able to protect themselves and have the, the ability to defend themselves. Um, and this is where it sort of starts, the emotional reversal. Again, so we've had all these other reversals. Now we're getting to the emotional reversal, because when Mordecai and the Jews initially hear about this, um, this edict from Haman to, to kill all the Jews, what was their reaction? Well, obviously, they were very sad and distressed and, and all that stuff. And we read this in verse uh, 3 of chapter 4, as the news of the king's decree reached all the provinces, there was great mourning among the Jews. Obviously, right? That makes sense. If you're being told you're going to die, your family's going to die, and this is a whole, all your people are going to die, there's great mourning. They fasted, wept, and wailed, and many people in burlap and ashes. Many people lay in burlap and ashes. But again, we see a reversal in this emotional state that these people are in because Mordecai has written this new decree, verse, eight, verse 15 of chapter 8. Then Mordecai left the king's presence wearing the royal robe which is such a stark contrast to wearing burlap and being in ashes and having ashes all over you and listening like you're in despair. Very different thing to wearing the royal robes, you know, sort of having this royal presence with you. He was wearing the great crown of gold, which again, contrasting that to the ashes on the head, very different, right? And an outer cloak of fine linen and purple. Continue on verse 15. And the people of Susa celebrated the new decree. The Jews were filled with joy and gladness and were honored Everywhere, because again, with that previous decree with Haman, the whole city was sort of confused and not so sure what was what was to happen with that. And now the city, not just the Jews, but the city, are joyful. That basically we need to remind reminded sometimes that God can wipe away tears, that God can change our emotions, and our emotions are are so you know they're impacted by so many different things. Some things we can control, and some things we cannot, and yet God still can be in control. Of our emotions. He can turn sadness into joy, and, and he can do that specifically when we're operating on his principles, right? Of his timing and his, his opportunities and, and s- submitting to what he wants us to do and listening to his voice when he's telling us to do something. And so uh, after this happens, eventually that, that, that nine months to a year goes by, and all of a sudden this, day, this date is coming. And if we remember back, that the, the reason that this date was chosen was because Haman rolled these dice, cast these lots, that basically determined what the date was going to be. And so as we're going to see a little bit later, that name of those dice or those lots, <clears throat> excuse me, that's going to be a significant part of what the Jews then celebrate after this. It's actually the name of the celebration that they're going to have. But basically that, that day comes, and it's sort of randomly chosen, it seems like, as March 7th. And so that day is coming, verse uh, 1 of chapter 9. So on March 7th, the two decrees of the king were put into effect. Both the decrees, equally, right? Kill the Jews, and also the Jews can protect themselves, right? Because they couldn't, they couldn't get rid of that first decree. So on March 7th, the two decrees of the king were put into effect. On that day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower the Jews, but quite the opposite happened. It was the Jews who overpowered their enemies. Verse 2, The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the king's provinces to attack anyone who tried to harm them. But no one could make a stand against them, for everyone was afraid of them. Verse 3, And all the nobles of the provinces, the highest officers, the governors, and the royal officials helped the Jews for fear of Mordecai, because Mordecai is in this position of power, and they're afraid of him. He's also a Jew, and so again, they're, they're kind of afraid of him. Uh, verse four: For Mordecai had been prompted and promoted, sorry, in the king's palace, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces as he became more and more powerful. And so as we see, so much has changed over the course of this year from when this, this edict and this decree was issued to now this, this day has come where these Jews are supposed to be killed, and yet it seems like they're not going to get killed. It seems like they're able to, to defend themselves against their enemies. And so much has changed specifically with Haman and Mordecai. Haman was in this position of power where he was able to get this decree issued. Now, a year later, he's dead. And now Mordecai, who was sort of in a lower position, has now been elevated and promoted to this other position of basically where Mordecai or where Haman previously was. Now the end of the story—I'm just going to be honest with you—it's a bit difficult <laughs> for a modern person to sort of reckon um, a good, loving God with the destruction, the, the the death that happens after this. And yet we also know that that the evil and the sin of those people that were trying to kill the Jews. We, we know that ultimately that does lead to death, right? It does lead to death, whether that's spiritually or in their own hearts or in their relationships. It ultimately leads to death. But we see and sort of, if you read the rest of the story, it leads to some 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 serious death. Like hundreds of people are killed as the as the Jews defend themselves against these attackers. And so I, I don't want to necessarily go through that because I don't want to necessarily emphasize it all that much more. But there, there is a sense in which the Jews are able to defeat their enemies. And... and and, and um, maybe one of the points to take away from that is while the Jews did defeat their enemies, they did not take their possessions from those they killed and those they defeated. And that's kind of an interesting reversal from previously um, in, in King Saul's day. King Saul and the Israelites were fighting against some of Haman's ancestors. The same exact people groups were fighting against the Jews, against Haman's ancestors. And they're fighting against each other. And, and King Saul was supposed to not take anything from Haman's ancestors. And yet, King Saul was tempted and he wanted to profit from this. And so he took stuff from Haman's ancestors. And God eventually turned around and said, you're not the king anymore, basically. And, and so King Saul you know, missed an opportunity. And then later, fast forward to this day in the story of Esther, uh, the Jews did not take anything from those who were trying to defeat them and trying to attack them. And so, again, they were following what God, even though they had the opportunity to, the law said they could take stuff from, their, from the people who were attacking them. They did not do that. And so the reports are coming in basically saying how the Jews had, again, defeated their enemies, and, and again, hundreds of people were killed because the, the Jews were defending themselves. And so these reports start coming in of what's happening inside the capital city, but also outside the capital city, and basically those who hated the Jewish people were destroyed. And it's sort of a reminder, I think, again, of baseline principle that hate does lead to destruction a lot of times, right? It doesn't help the person who hates, it usually leads to their destruction, uh, the author is also going to tell us another reason why this story of Esther was written. And it's a, a pretty powerful one. It's to sort of explain this festival, this celebration that the Jews would have. Verse 24. Uh, Haman, son of, uh, I didn't practice this one before, Hamadatha, <laughs> the agite, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted to crush and destroy them on the date determined by casting lots. The lots were called. Perim, which is again the name of the festival that they sort of celebrated after this to celebrate that they were not annihilated, they were not destroyed, that God rescued them from this plot. Um, and so, a day that was again meant for sadness—it was the March 7th was going to be a destruction day. It was meant for sadness and destruction. Now becomes a day of celebration for the Jews. Verse 28: These days will be remembered and kept from generation to generation and celebrated by every family throughout the provinces and the cities of the empire. This celebration, this festival, was an opportunity for the Jewish people again to remember that God had delivered them, that God had um, worked through them in a way that helped save their lives and helped rescue them. And because of God's providence, they should celebrate God's hand working behind the scenes, his unseen hand working behind the scenes. Uh, Dr. Tony Evans has been sort of an influence in this story, been one of the resources uh, for this, this series. He says this, we should tell the story of God's provision to everyone. It sort of reminded us the power of why we should do this. We should tell the story of God's provision to everyone and pass the stories along To future generations that that was sort of the purpose for for the telling of this story of esther that that we want to pass on what god has done to share with other people because we all go through seasons where we forget that god can come through for us because the circumstances again our perspective in the moment says well i don't know that god can because i just see all the things happening it's just right in front of my face and sometimes we need to be reminded of things outside of our perspective things that didn't happen while we were even alive things that didn't even happen in our season or our, our our place in the world And so we see that there was an economic reversal, there's a political reversal, there's a legal reversal, there's an emotional reversal. You could probably maybe even add in a spiritual reversal in what happened in this situation. But the question at the end of the book also sort of is the question that we have at the beginning of the book. Was God really orchestrating these events and these reversals? Where where was God in this? If God was actually doing all this, how could God be orchestrating these reversals if he's not even mentioned at all throughout the book? Well, I would give you a couple responses to that question. I think you can ask that question. You can ask God that question. You can ask that question of other people. It's okay to ask questions. God is not afraid of our questions. Let me be very clear. I don't think God's necessarily afraid of anything, but God is uh, for sure not afraid of our questions. He's not afraid of those things. Um, so a couple of responses, number one, I think there's too many coincidences, right? I, I think we've all been in a moment, in a situation where we just said like, that's just too many things happening at the same time. There must be something bigger happening. Now, maybe you can think back to like some um, some dating opportunities that you had and maybe you were you were um, being pursued by somebody and all of a sudden these things, just like you got roses one day and all of a sudden you got chocolates next and all of a sudden there's this guy nicely dressed and he's asking you out. and. Just too many coincidences, right? Um, There's lots of ways we could just say that's just too many coincidences. There must be something happening behind the scenes that we don't know. Um, And if there was just a couple instances of sort of that luck or happenstance or it just seems like things are random, then that would be one thing. But the sheer number of coincidences, I should say, in this story, I think leads to there being something bigger than that. And that's point number two, that the trajectory of the story, that sort of the angle of the story, it points to something much more than just a coincidence, that if you look at the story arc, um, Kevin, if you can go to the next slide there, the, um, sort of this uh, image of the story of Esther, you can't see it super well, so if you want to find it, you can go to our website, nlnc.org hub, and you can go actually find this actual image. I think it's pretty powerful. Basically, it's a sort of a graphic novel depiction of, of the story and the chapters of Esther, and it sort of starts off on, on the left side over here, in chapter one and chapter two, um, and it sort of it points to some things that I think will help us to see the ironic reversals of how this story is laid out, because it seems like there's instances of ironic reversal But in some ways, the whole story itself is an ironic reversal of the whole story. The whole thing happens that way. So in the first few blocks, we have the king's splendor. We have the feast, um, the decrees that were um, sort of mirrored by Mordecai's decrees and Mordecai's splendor, I should say, that happened at the end. So the king has some some decrees at the beginning. There's this festival. And then at the end, there's also this festival, this celebration, and this decrees uh, as well. And so in those blocks, there's also Esther and Mordecai at the beginning. They save the king from a plot to, to kill the king. And now at the end, Esther and Mordecai help save all of the Jews. Not just one person, but they save all of the Jews. And then, that second block, we see that Haman is sort of elevated, and he's sort of beginning his ascension to being a powerful person. And then at the beginning, or at the end rather, Mordecai, his enemy, is now elevated to a position of power. And then in verse, uh, then, not verse 3, but the next blocks, we see that Haman's decree to kill the Jews. Um, we see that he sort of institutes that decree to kill the Jews. And then on the other side, we have Mordecai's decree to save the Jews, that they can protect themselves, they can defend themselves. And then plus there's the, sort of the banquets that go along with both of those things. They both sort of have that as well. And then in the fourth set of blocks, in the center, we sort of see Esther and Mordecai planning. They're, they're, they're making their plans to figure out how they can deal with this decree that's happening, and how they can address the king, and then how they can a- address the decree as well. And we see them sort of framing around this center point that's sort of the hinge point in the story, which at the, in the center of the story is Haman being humiliated. Haman, Haman's plans being foiled, that God somehow was working behind the scenes to, to bring about Esther, to have the courage to go and talk to the king. And Haman's plans are foiled. And then um, uh, we see that Mordecai then is also starting his exaltation. He's starting to rise, rise to power as well. And so I would suggest to you that all of those points sort of lead to the idea that God is present in this story. That those things can't be laid out so precisely and so detailed without somebody bigger orchestrating things. That God is a God of reversals. So, if that's true, what can we sort of take away from that? Because when you're in the moment of things happening and you want a reversal, that's really difficult to remember. That's really difficult to sort of live out. And so, I think the first point is that we should wait on God. And that is so difficult when you're in the moment and waiting is just not something that we're good at as modern people, but even I think throughout history, we've not been really good at just waiting on God. And again, uh, Tony Evans, who has a, a lot of helpful things I think to say in this series, he says this waiting on God does not mean doing nothing. It means not going outside of God to do something on your own, which I think is a powerful, powerful point, especially when you're in the moment, right? You just want to do something. You just want to get out of the situation. You just want to do whatever you can to get out of it. And I, I think his point is very good that we, we don't have to not just avoid doing anything. We can do something, but we should not do. The boundary should be, do not do anything outside of what God wants you to do. If you're really wanting to get out of a moment, It's not a good idea to kill somebody, right? That's not a good way to get out of a situation, right? We'd realize that in the extreme situations. But sometimes in the the less extreme situations, we think we justify. We say, yeah, yeah, it's all right. I'm going to just take things into my own hands and get out of this situation. What we're really saying is I can't wait on God. So if you're in that moment, you're in that situation where you need a reversal, wait on God. It means submitting to him. It means following his guidelines. It means sort of being under his leadership of your life that he's the one leading, not actually you. Okay, so number one, wait on God. Number two, remember God's ability to reverse. And I sort of was thinking immediately as I said this sort of about driving, right? Some people can go backwards pretty well and drive backwards, and others, (laughs) it's like you should not try to backwards. You should try to go forwards at all times, because if you try to back up, you're going to make a mistake or whatever, right? And we need to remember that God can go forwards and backwards. He can sort of reverse and change things really quickly and change directions really quickly, and sometimes We can't. And so maybe you're in a situation right now where you would like to see a reversal, and maybe you need to remember that there can be reversal, that God can also do something that you can't do. You can't maybe go back and change the circumstances. You can't change the situation. You can't change what's happened. But God can reverse things. That God has this miraculous power to be able to change things in a way that we can't. And that leads us to number three. Expand your view of God. And I think one of the ways that you can expand your view of God is by sort of reading books like Esther, where it's not so easy to depict, or rather to identify God and his work and his hands and his activity as easily as maybe it is as the the Gospels, you know, the accounts of Jesus' life, the other parts of the Bible, that you can expand your, your view of God by actively looking for how God's fingerprint might be placed in ways that you just barely can see it, but you look for ways that point you to that direction. That maybe you need to ask God to help you recognize the activity that he has around you. Maybe just start with that. Ask God, God, could you expand my view of you by helping to see those ways that are not so obvious, but the ways I can see you working around me. It's sort of sometimes like the connect the dot thing. I don't know if any of you have done those lately. I haven't. But, um, you know, you sort of think back to elementary school and you used to do connect the dots. And and you see this picture when you're younger and you say, I see numbers and I see dots, but I have no idea what this is going to be because I just don't, can't see it yet, right? But as you start drawing, you start connecting dot to dot to dot, you start to see a bigger picture unfold. And that's sometimes what life is like, right? It's just You do one dot, and your responsibility is just to get to the next dot. Now, sometimes we don't always know where that dot is, or that seems like a big gap of time from one dot to the next dot. But there's a way in which we can have a bigger, bigger perspective, a bigger view of God and just continue to move from dot to dot from what he knows, what we know what he wants us to do to the next thing that we know he wants us to do. Again, that might just be a moral standard of you don't hurt other people. You, you love other people in this season where it's really difficult and you might want to get angry at people. You need to focus on just being able to love other people. That's the next dot for some of us today. And so we can expand our view of God by just continuing to move from dot to dot to dot. So I'd ask you a couple questions about this. Is your view of God big enough that he can actually handle your circumstances right now? Because maybe your view of God is not big enough that he can handle the circumstances. You're questioning, you're doubting, and and maybe that's not even necessarily a bad thing, but you're questioning, doubting, can God actually handle this? And maybe God wants to expand your view of him through this situation and through what you're going through. Uh, What would you change, or what would change, rather, about your circumstances if you remembered that God is faithful, God is present, God can deliver you? What would change about your circumstances, or what would change about your perspective of those circumstances if you remembered those things? And then maybe you just need to look for God's activity. Where is God's activity around you? And maybe you just need to move towards that. Wherever you see God working, whether it's helping people, whether it's some sort of ministry, whether it's some sort of opportunity to mentor people or help people, maybe you just move in the direction that you think that God is working and you can be there in that moment. So as we wrap up this series, I want to read something that I just thought was too well written um, to try to rewrite it or sort of adapt it. So I just want to read it for you. It's from the Bible Project. Again, that was, one of the, that was the group that created that, um, that poster image. And they have some great videos about, the, uh, about different books of the Bible, sort of giving you an overview and helping you understand what's going on and the context of it. Um, but they wrote this part about the, the book of Esther, and I just want to read it as we wrap up our time together today. So the book of Esther comes back to that question with which we began. Why is God not mentioned? The message of this book seems to be that when God seems absent, when his people are in exile, when his people are unfaithful to the Torah or the law, when other people are out to get us, when it doesn't seem that any of these events are orchestrated, when we see sin or when we sin and we don't know what we could have done or what we could do, does that mean that God is done with us? Has God abandoned his promises? The book of Esther tells us no. It invites us to see that God can and does work in the real mess and moral ambiguity of human history. He uses the faithfulness of even morally compromised people to accomplish his purposes. The book of Esther asks us to be willing to trust God's providence even when we can't see it working. And to hope that no matter how bad things get, God is committed to redeeming his world.